1: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, the host of New Books and Music, part of the New Books Network. Today, my guests are Renee Romano and Claire Potter, the editors of a new collection of essays called Historians on Hamilton, How a Blockbuster Musical is Restaging America's Past from Rutgers University Press. Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton has taken the whole country by storm, and with it has come a renewed interest in and sympathy for Alexander Hamilton. The essays in this collection take on some of the questions and issues raised by the musical and its popularity. Some of the authors comment on the ways that Miranda's interpretation of American history diverges from many historians' understandings, while others take him to task for his portrayals of women and slavery. Miranda's decision to cast non-white actors in most of the roles also comes under scrutiny. Aimed at a wide audience, including teachers, scholars, non-historians, and fans, the essays in the collection provide a diverse, sometimes contradictory set of views on Hamilton. I'm so happy to welcome Renee Romano and Claire Potter today. Um, They they are the editors of Historians on Hamilton. Welcome both of you.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Wonderful. So before we start talking about the content of this really interesting and great book, um, I wanted to start to talk a little bit about the background of it and how you came to this project. Theater is such a collaborative art form, but you know, history often is not. And so I was interested to see that you two decided to work together on the editing of this collection. I'm wondering how you came to work together and why you decided to uh, pick this project.
0: Okay, this is Renee, and I'll start. I would say that uh, history, I think we have a wrap of uh, take your archival box and sit alone in a cold room and then eventually write by yourself, a very solitary kind of project. But I would really urge all historians to consider working on a collaborative project. They're wonderful. It is so much fun to talk about ideas uh, and to work on writing with smart people. So Claire and I have been working together for years, and we really had the, uh, the great good fortune of teaching together when we were both at the same institution. And then when I moved on uh, to a different institution, we really wanted to keep working together. So we've edited a book series together. We've edited another volume together. And uh, it's really just been such a joy to have at least one project that doesn't involve sitting by myself in a cubicle.
2: Yeah, I would agree with Renee on that. And I would, I would say anybody who is thinking about doing a collaborative project, um, think about someone who both shares a lot of your own qualities and has a lot of different qualities. Um, Renee and I have a lot of similarities in terms of our interests and our intellects and our work ethic. Um, but we all also each have different strengths. Um, I am sort of a um, OCD plotter. Um, Renee likes to rush ahead and between the two of us, we get the benefit of Renee sort of saying, this is the next best thing. We have to work on it, which is what she said about Hamilton. Um, and me saying, Hey, we need an indexer, you know? So, <laughs> so I think together, um, as Hamilton would say, we get the job done.
0: Yeah. And the, the, the genesis of this project actually was in part, just looking, starting to look for a new project that we could work on. We had decided that we uh, had had enough of a book series, that we had fulfilled uh, its growth potential, as it were, for us. We'd gotten as much out of it as we could. And we weren't working together on anything, which made me sad. So I was walking down the street one day. And at that point, I was listening to Hamilton a lot on my, uh, you know, just the, the soundtrack. And I live in central rural Ohio, a small town. And I heard these teenagers walking down the street singing Hamilton. And I thought, you know, this is, I knew it was a big hit. I knew it was a cultural sort of a zeitgeist moment, but I thought if it's making middle America, small town, rural central Ohio, right, there's something going on here that we need to, to think about. And so I called Claire and I said, I think we should do a project where we bring together historians to engage with Hamilton. And she said, I haven't, heard Hamilton. (laughs) I've never even heard it. And I said, hang up, listen to the soundtrack and call me back tomorrow. And Claire, you can pick up the story from there.
2: (laughs) And so I did. And, And I think this also reflects on the idea of collaboration. If Renee thinks something is important, even if I haven't thought about it, or I don't think it's important right off the top of my head, because Renee cares about it, I know it must be. So when I was driving home from the country one weekend, I listened to Hamilton all the way through from beginning to end. And by the time I hit the West Side Highway in New York, it was the last song, you know, where where Hamilton's wife is writing herself back into the narrative. And I had tears pouring down my face and I got home and I called Renee and I was like, okay, all right, it's a go. We have to do this.
1: I mean, I have to say the first time I heard the soundtrack, I cried too. So (laughs) I think you're not alone in that, Claire. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, so it it sounds like you came together pretty quickly on deciding to do this project. And one of the things I was interested in was how did you decide on the contributors? Um, Did you do a CFP or did you commission things? I mean, how did that come about?
2: We we commissioned because one of the things we knew is that we needed to get this book out fast um, because it was so popular and there were so many people teaching Hamilton. Um, First, we wanted to provide um, a set of resources for people who were using Hamilton in the classroom. But the second thing was, um, Renee had a great idea and a great idea only stays fresh for so long. So so we did not do a CFP. Um, You know, we're both... We've both been in history for 25 plus years, probably 50 years collectively. Um, So we knew a lot of the people we wanted to talk to. Um, I think both Renee and I have also had the advantage of working at liberal arts colleges where the expectation is that you will be able to teach more than the field of your research. So I think both of us had kept up to some degree with the um, literature in early American history. Um, We knew there were some key people who had to be part of it. Joanne Freeman was one. Um, Our friend Leslie Harris um, was another. Leslie's one of the few people who have written about slavery in New York. Um, So that was going to be a key component of the book. Um, And we assembled a group of people who we were pretty confident could write really good history for a general audience and do it fairly quickly.
0: Yeah. And I just want to add here, Renee, again, that one of the things that really struck us from the moment we came up with this project is the speed uh, with which everyone has, has approached it and how quickly it has moved. If you know, anyone who's a historian knows that typically from beginning of end to a project you are talking years even a journal article you may be talking years to move from idea to actually seeing it in print and we came up with this idea in june of 2016 we had written a book proposal that we were sending out to presses by a month later we had a contract within by by august and essentially had lined up the contributors really by October, and gave them till December or January to write their essays. So it was an incredibly quick process. uh, And we were able to find people both through folks we knew and we, we knew would be great and who were already talking or thinking about Hamilton. But then we also found as we got into the field, folks saying, oh, you need to talk to this person. They've just done this really interesting Presentation on Hamilton, or they've just done this blog piece on Hamilton, or they're really, really smart and are thinking about this in a different way. And so we were able to sort of snowball our contributors beyond uh, the fields that we're most familiar with and really put together what I think is a fabulous group of scholars who took this project both seriously in terms of really engaging with Hamilton, but also took to heart our goal that we wanted this to be accessible, we wanted the essays to be. Fun, to be interesting, to be written for a general educated audience and really uh, ran with that. Yeah.
2: And and I just want to add, I personally wanted people who turned us down to write in the book to be incredibly jealous when the book came out. Um, because, you know, I I really felt like we were onto something here. Um, and everybody we talked to and everybody we've talked to since has expressed some sense of amazement that We jumped on it so fast and got the book out so fast. I I would also say that, um, you know, Renee has a phenomenal capacity for hard work. And then then pairing that with my background as a blogger and a journalist, um, I'm now editor of Public Seminar in New York. um, I think both of us realize that good scholarship can be produced much faster than anybody will admit. Um, and that putting that to work at a moment when a musical that had all sorts of good qualities, but all sorts of, you know, problems when you introduce it as history, um, bringing that into the classroom without any kind of context um, was going to be difficult for teachers. So so there we felt there was kind of like a pedagogical emergency to be addressed, as well as an opportunity to do a fun project and get it out quickly.
1: Well, it really is amazing how quickly you got it out. i'm I'm sure there are not that many scholarly edited collections that have that sort of turnaround time, and I think you're right that um, it was definitely needed as someone who has taught Hamilton myself. Um, I'm certainly happy to have um, have this book at my disposal. So um, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to, to turn it around and, and maybe we can start speeding up scholarship. It's certainly frustrating how slowly things get sort of mired in in the process. Um, so I'll just direct this question to Renee real quick. I, I was interested to see that you did not choose that many scholars that um, routinely work either in theater history or musicology, and I'm wondering, was that uh, a, re- a reflection of your own backgrounds, or was that a conscious choice? Like, how, why, why make that choice?
0: Well, I think for us, we were thinking about the essays in three categories. So, one category was really assessing the. Uh, The the historical representation that Hamilton presents, the the musical. So we really wanted to get folks who are specialists in early American history, which I will add is neither Claire nor my specialties. We're both really 20th century historians. Uh, so we needed to get folks who study early American history to engage with this representation. What does it get right? What does it get wrong? Why does it matter? What are the repercussions of it? The, the way this musical is presenting the past? So that was one category of people that we really wanted to ensure were in the volume. A second category of of essays explores the question of how revolutionary is Hamilton really taking as a... Um, a charge, Hamilton's own claim that it is a revolution and thinking about what's revolutionary about this and what's not. And there we do have theater historian, Elizabeth Woolman trying to uh, really effectively, I think put Hamilton in a much larger theatrical historical context of big tickets. We have um, Brian Herrera, who's a performance studies theater scholar, you know, talking about uh, the the ways in which the Hamilton resonates with other kinds of issues in stage history. Uh, and we we do have musicologist and performance studies um, uh, Patricia Herrera uh, also talking about sort of the soundscape that Hamilton creates. But I think the uh, one of the things we were trying to do was to broaden the. Um, the, the group of people, or have a broad group of, of experts on this, talking about it from a variety of perspectives. The title is historians on Hamilton, so we really wanted largely historical kinds of perspectives, but theater history, music history, performance studies, trying to bring all of those to bear. So it's it wasn't a um, I think the decision was, how do we keep this broad and how do we address all of the big issues that we want to see talked about in this book and, and what kinds of scholars are the best to address, let's say, Hamilton's portrayal of race uh, as a historical representation, right? Or, um, you know, Hamilton's claims about its own newness. So th- I guess from my perspective, we didn't, we do have folks who do theater history and, and uh, you know, performance studies in the volume. But... We also have a lot of historians who are more um, traditional historians.
2: Yeah, I would also say, adding to that, that Hamilton um, offers a lot of opportunities, and um, often high school teachers are leading the way with those opportunities. So um, we wanted a high school teacher in the volume, and we're fortunate enough to get Jim Cullen, who teaches at Ethical Culture Fieldston, about why he started using Hamilton in his classroom. And actually, Jim's syllabus um, for his students is, is in the book. Um, Michael O'Malley um, did an article for us about money. Um, since Hamilton being on the $20 bill, and actually there was a whole controversy about removing him from the $20 bill, uh, or excuse me, the $10 bill, $10 founding father, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, founding father, um, yeah. <laughs> that, that creates an opportunity to talk to students about money. You know, where does, where does American money come from? It hasn't always been the same. What does it mean? Why do we put founding fathers on the, on the money as opposed to other countries, which sometimes put animals or plants on the money? Um, so, so Michael was able to um, sort of crack open the door of this interest in Hamilton to actually get students and their teachers to think more carefully about where money comes from and what its symbolic importance is. My own essay is about the Hamilton social media fan community. Um, It doesn't offer a lot of insight into the musical, but probably the vast majority of students who are going to be in a history classroom have been members of some internet fan community. So getting them to think about how that community functions, how Hamilton has actually been repurposed by fans to do other kinds of pleasurable um, work and play Um, becomes an opportunity that that interest in the musical offers.
0: Right. And the the final thing I'd say on this is we certainly don't see this volume as exhausted by any means. I've already met a lot of other people who are working on Hamilton from other perspectives, uh, other disciplinary perspectives, other kinds of questions. And I think that's fabulous. I think this is a really rich site for exploration and engagement and uh, questioning. And I think there's going to be a lot of scholarship on Hamilton in the years to come from all kinds of perspectives. And and I welcome that because there's some, it's such a rich Musical, And I think there's so much
1: to say about it. Um, Well, Claire, you have started us into talking uh, more about the content. But before we leave that and and talk about some of the themes that run through the book, I just wanted to make sure that we um, did talk about the audience. You started to mention that already. But I'm really interested to hear uh, who do you think is the ideal reader for this particular collection?
2: God, I wish we had some data on it. I would say the ideal reader, um, and there are a lot of people out there like this, are people who love history. And one of the things that Hamilton has really tapped into, I think, is the sort of general love for history um, among Americans, certainly. I mean, any any one of us who's a historian who has spent time in a bed and breakfast or on an airplane, you know, when somebody says, what do you do? And you say, I'm a historian they generally respond by telling you what they love about history. Like they love World War II, or they love the Civil War, or they love going to museums. And so Hamilton really tapped into this too. And I think what we saw was that fans of Hamilton, um, among the general public, um, were seeking out other things to read and other things to see, um, when when we started on this project, I decided I should probably read the Federalist Papers again, and I went on to Amazon. And not only was Amazon sold out of the Fe- Federalist Papers, but it had five stars. And so you realize that there is this kind of capacious desire to learn out there, which is, I think, more or less nonpartisan, which which uh, Renee addressed in, addresses in her essay, but I think also. We wanted to make sure that high school teachers and college teachers who were using Hamilton to energize their students' interests in early American history really had access to a set of resources that helped them grapple with what is true in the musical, what isn't true in the musical, and why perhaps what isn't true about the musical is important to talk about anyway.
0: Right. I would add to that, though. I mean, I think Claire is 100 is percent right that the book is partially aimed at people who love history. I think it's also aimed at people who love Hamilton or are vexed by Hamilton's popularity and don't understand it. And I've seen the volume in the hands of both of those kinds of people, folks who just I love Hamilton. I need to you know, dive into anything that gives me more insight into why I love this musical and, and what's going on in the musical. Um, I've also seen folks and talk to people who are reading it because they're like, I don't get why Hamilton is such a big deal. Uh, and really trying to think about what is at stake or what, why has this hit such a cultural zeitgeist kind of thing? Um, I will say this is the only one, only of my books ever that one of my high school friends called up and said, could you sign a copy for my 13 year old? Right. Because she's like really into Hamilton and I'm giving it to her for her birthday. I'm like, sure. Right. So I think it's also for those folks. It's for, Thirteen, fourteen—you know—year olds who want to just understand better, or really want to just dig into this musical and why they love it so much. I've had uh, folks, you know, my colleagues who also (laughs) like—you're saying I, you know, I'm going to read your book before I go see Hamilton when it's playing in town, right? So also, I think it's something that can deepen your appreciation for the musical or give you tools for. Grappling with whatever your own reservations might be and, and thinking about why, you know, what's what else might be behind or how else can I think about some of the things that this musical might be making me Yeah.
2: No, I, th- I think you're right. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about the Hamilton phenomenon is exactly, I mean, I have seen people put pictures up on Instagram and on Facebook of their 13 year old holding our book with a huge grin on his or her face. Um, I've also seen, you know, I live in New York where a lot of people read on the subway. Um, I've seen kids going to school on the subway reading Ron Chernow's book about Hamilton. So I think there's an enormous opportunity here. Um, You know, I think sometimes people really underestimate young teenagers' desire to know the world better. Um, And their capacity to read and understand things that are that are really for adults. I think there's an enormous opportunity with this volume um, for 12, 13, 14 year olds to learn, for example, that there is a field called African-American history um, that you can, in fact, write a serious article about television shows and movies that people will read. Um, that there is something called a national park system that is made up of land stolen from Native American people. So so I think there's an opportunity to use history here, um, as Hamilton does in many ways, to get very young readers um, to see the world differently.
1: Uh, Yes, I agree with you, Claire, about the capacity of younger people to really want to engage with these things more and often not getting the chance because people don't think they can. So it's exciting to think that you've got um, not just teachers and uh, scholars reading this, but also that you've seen a lot of teenagers as well. That's, that's really interesting, and, and um, yeah. I hope that they get a lot out of it. Uh, one of the things I, uh, one of the issues that I think that this book, many of the authors in this book deal with, sometimes glancingly, sometimes it's sort of the, the core of what they're talking about is um, this issue of, of the casting and how um, the casting does or does not um, you know, what the casting does, I guess, and how they feel about it, and and um, depending upon how they're approaching it. Um, and Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, says over and over, this is a story about America Then, told by America Now, as his way of explaining um, the casting decisions of using non-white actors for uh, f- to portray people who are white. Um, you know, can you sort of run down and help us understand what some of your authors had to say about these casting decisions and... Um, uh, you know, I hate for you to have to talk about other people's work, but maybe we'll start with, um, Claire, maybe you can can start with sort of uh, how, I, well, and I will also say for people who haven't read the book, one of the great things about this book is that not everybody agrees, and they you really got a great group of people to sort of um, show a lot of different perspectives and uh, sometimes really disagree with each other, with it, which I think is a great um, strength of the book.
2: Yeah. Well, I think two of our authors, Lyra Montero and Patricia Herrera, in different ways really cut to the heart of what is controversial about the flipped casting, um, which is the possibility of giving children a false impression that, um, or giving children of color the false impression that their history is actually the same as the history of white people in America. And and by doing so, eliding the effects of white supremacy that um, infect daily life um, for everyone in this country. And so I think one concern that that these authors had and several other authors have had is does the flipped casting sort of um, invoke an Obama era, can't we all just be together? Can't we all just, you know, love each other and so on and forget about race? Um, Now, Renee and I don't think that's actually what what Lynn manuel Miranda is doing or that that was his intent. But I think these authors are saying whether that's his intent or not, that can be the effect. And that's something we need to find ways to critically approach. And as Patricia Herrera speaks about, talk to our children about. Um, so that when her daughter, when her brown daughter said, I want to be, um, you know, uh, Angelica, um, she, you know, she said, wait a second. You know, we love this music, but I don't want you to be Angelica. <laughs> you know, you, that isn't Angelica. That is that is Renee Elise Goldsberry, an incredibly talented brown skinned woman. You can be her. Um, so. I think that kind of a conversation is very very important to put alongside another kind of conversation which Renee I think you should you should pick up that piece of it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the big debates in this book really um that comes out and I think there's there's several uh areas in which people really differ in opinions is what is the impact of this kind of um Racialized casting and the casting choices that they've made here, and as Claire says, you know, on one side of the the debate are folks who really see the uh, the casting as effectively erasing the actual history of people of color at the founding, right? And as uh, Alira Monter- Montero says, for example you know, there was other there were other people in the room where it happened. This was a dinner at Jefferson's house. There were going to be slaves in that room. She also says, you know, a, a story, as, as Miranda likes to say, this is a story about America then as told by America now. She's like, no, America then also was multiracial, right? It's not like America now is multiracial and America then wasn't, right? That we are erasing the actual history of Let's say uh, folks who participated in the revolution of African-Americans who fought against slavery were ignoring that actual history and asking in their perspective in these essays, people of color to essentially accept this celebratory history of uh, white founding fathers in a way that elides and erases the history of white supremacy that is such a part of our national story. So that's one side of the debate. My essay takes this uh, somewhat differently and that I really look at Hamilton as doing the work of constructing a kind of civic origin myth. Now, civic myths are the things that give a sense of identity to a people. They are the stories that nations, in this case, tell themselves about who belongs and who doesn't belong. And the American national origin myth for a long time has really been about uh, from a, a white person's perspective and who fully belongs are white people. And that's something that's been written into our law, whether the 1790 naturalization law that said only free white persons can naturalize to all kinds of, of our documents. And so one of the things I think this play is really doing is reimagining what America should look like what American and, and what it means to be American. And by giving this image of uh, Black and Brown people playing the founding fathers, it's giving authority to people of color to own and tell the nation's origin stories, to be there at the center from the beginning. So I think it's doing a very different kind of political work myself, um, though I understand the critique that others make of it. And I think we're going to have to see over the long term you know, how this plays out, right? I mean, one of the things somebody uh, somebody said to me recently, which was really interesting, they said, you know, uh, my five-year-old son saw a picture of George Washington recently and he looked to me and he said, oh, I didn't know Washington was white, right? And <laughs> I thought, okay, so what is the impact then of little American children today growing up thinking the founding fathers were people of color? Is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? And what will be the political impact in let's say legitimizing the leadership of you know and and the full membership of people of color as equal and rightful heirs of the nation right um so i to me that that's one of the big debates in the book and one that we leave open for readers to come down where they where they think yeah and
2: i mean just just to add to that you know um one of the things I remember um, from when I was a kid, and I went to a largely white private school in the suburbs of Philadelphia, um, and in the seventh grade, a young African-American woman joined us, um, and she was, you know, very much a um, a minority, um, literally, among the among the class. And her name, her last name was Jefferson. And she said to us, she would constantly say to us, you know, one of my ancestors is Thomas Jefferson. I'm a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. And we would say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Um, now, I, I look back on that and I'm just horrified on a certain level um, that nobody actually dealt with this in, in any way. But it's also true that you know the rumors about Jefferson's black descendants had been around four years. Um, and it wasn't until Annette Gordon-Reed really did the deep archival labor of proving that there were, in fact, Black Jeffersons um, that this became discussable. Um, I'm telling this story for a couple of reasons. One is that, in fact, there are descendants of founding fathers who are Black. <laughs> Maybe they weren't Black themselves, but Blackness is, is sort of deeply embedded um, in the American past, and that moment of freedom, which Hamilton describes, and that moment of nation building. Um, and that's something that ought to be discussable in a much bigger way. I think Hamilton creates that opportunity, and I hope we do too. I think the second thing is the question of Black people on stage, which Elizabeth Woolman takes up in her piece, Um, is also something that needs to be discussed. Theater is one of the most pleasurable activities that high school and college students take part in. It's a huge refuge for LGBT students, and yet the lack of parts for actors and actresses of color and the reluctance to cast actors and actresses of color in parts that were written, quote unquote, for white people is very, very strong today. And so I think Hamilton creates this discussable moment. You know, part of what Miranda has done is potentially create thousands and thousands of jobs for young actors of color. Um, That is not an insignificant intervention in Broadway, regardless of these other debates. Right.
0: And one final thing I would add is it's going to be very interesting to see where the casting goes. As our lovely colleague in the book, Brian Herrera, reminds us, and he is a a performance studies and theater historian, and he reminds us, you know, you typical historians tend to see cultural representations as static, but in theater history, we know that things change with the, every performance is different. So you go to a performance, uh, one performance, and you go the next day, and you're watching two different performances. And he points out uh, that right now, Hamilton Inc. is in, essentially, negotiations about licensing this musical for high school productions. And that one possibility being considered is that there would be rights, uh, that, that essentially that um, language that would allow the lead roles to be played by women. And uh, so I think that would be a really interesting also shift. What happens when all the founding uh, so-called fathers are, in fact, played by women high school students? What's that going to do in terms of how we look at our national origin story? And so I think this is also a work in progress that is going to continue to be really interesting and challenging how people understand, think about, and see uh, see the nation for some time to come.
1: Um, well, obviously, you've already started kind of uh, addressing the other big um, Uh, theme in the book because it's impossible to talk about the casting without talking about this and that is sort of what history is Hamilton telling and uh, one of the great things about this book to me is so often um, in the popular press when someone's talking about whether or not a piece of historical fiction is accurate it comes down to you know oh Hamilton had more children than you see or you know um, you know, it's it's very sort of these sort of picky facts, but your authors really look at things more holistically and are looking more about like his interpretation of history or the way and comparing that to Chernows and also to other historians interpretation of that time period. And um, I wonder if you could just sort of maybe Renee can start expand a little bit about um, some of the other authors and what they uh, what they're talking about in terms of, you know, what is the history that he is telling. And how does that um, gel or 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 confront some of the more accepted historical narratives about that time period?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we really tried to push people to not get too stuck up on our, is every single fact correct, right? And trying to think about what what happens when you change genres, right? What what counts as uh, false or true in a musical genre might be different than what counts as false or true in a historical, right, a, an academic work of scholarship. So um, is it false that, you know, the, the three men who confront Hamilton about his affairs, his extramarital affairs are not the same three men as represented in the musical? Well, not really. It's still getting the larger picture of what was going on there. I mean, I think some of the issues that people really uh, talk about, And there are people who are, are more or less critical of the historical representation here, um, and particularly the essays by uh, David Waldstreicher and Jeff Pelsley um, and William Hoagland. It, you know, they point out that one of the things that this musical really does is it makes Hamilton kind of a, a person who is a, a man of the people, as it were, who is someone who is representing the masses, who is challenging the... Uh, challenging elites and seeking to represent um, this democratic, this new kind of ideas about democracy. And, you know, when you actually look at Hamilton, that's like a really challenging and problematic interpretation, right? Given that he was actually quite uh, uncomfortable with uh, the rule of the masses. He proposed a lot of kind of hierarchical forms of government. He was not a man of the people in the way that, um, that the musical portrays. And in fact, someone like a Thomas Jefferson was significantly more open to uh, more radical forms of democracy in some ways than than Alexander Hamilton was, right? So there's a a moment where at least I think the some of the historians in the book see Hamilton being put in a, made to speak to sort of contemporary interests and made a hero along lines of contemporary representations in ways that are doing injustice to the actual historical record, right? That this is not in fact, um, really a fair representation of what was most important about him as uh, historically and his work historically. Um, we have other essays and I, I, I love the essay in the book by Catherine Al Gore who looks at gender in this, this musical and really points out the ways in which the musical sticks to a pretty traditional history kind of story, despite the fact that there are several uh, really wonderful women characters. It's still telling a story that's largely based on uh, thinking about politics and the military as sites for where history happens, as representing a masculinist point of view, sometimes even more of a masculinist point of view than in fact might've existed during this period and underplaying what is the, what she sees is the central sort of key to understanding gender in this period, which is the whole system of laws that put women in a subordinate legal position to men. And so she really sees Hamilton as opening up conversations um, that then folks need to carry further, but that it does not provide a full representation, right, that would allow us to understand critically sort of gender history in the early yeah. American period.
2: And, um I would only add to what Renee is saying is that I think there are two really key articles in the book um, to look at um, that address how history is always telling a story about something. It, you know, it's always more than than the aggregation of its facts. So Andrew Schockett, um wrote an essay in the book about what he calls the American Revolution rebooted um, that <laughs> says, you know, The American Revolution is a story that gets literally rebooted at different moments in history because we need something different from it. So this is sort of the latest rebooting. How do we come to terms with the complex and violent history of race in this country and still understand the American Revolution as a moment that was about freedom? Um, Similarly, uh, Joseph Edelman writes about people's histories, that there's a long tradition, um, and Howard Zinn is obviously the the most well-known example of that, but that there's there's a long um, past of people's histories that rewrite the history of the American founding for new audiences. Um, So I think that's very important. I would also like to say that there are moments that Miranda gets wrong that he also gets right. And my favorite example of that is King George, um, who is the only gay character in the play, um, when in fact we have an actual gay character, John Lawrence, who is not gay um, <laughs> in the play. So why would King George be gay? All right, totally wrong. He wasn't gay. Um, but... Actually, in early American and Atlantic political culture and British political culture, to flip someone's gender as you talked about them, to talk about a man as effeminate, was a way of talking about his weakness. Okay? So the characterization of King George as this, you know, gay fop. Um, in the play expresses somewhat accurately a historiographical conversation about how masculinity became contested when it came to debating questions of political power.
0: And I just want to add one other thing to thinking about Hamilton one of the things that I really appreciate about it and I it, you know it kind of offers a historical methods 101 to some extent and one of its key messages is that it matters who tells the story right your positionality your perspective shapes the way you understand the past and the story you tell right so it starts with that you know who tells your story and that's a constant theme it understands that folks Uh, People seek to create their own legacies and they seek to shape the historical record in particular kinds of ways. Right. And that there are moments where we have sources to tell stories and moments where we simply do not have the sources. And my favorite moment in the entire musical is when Eliza sits down and starts burning her letters and says, I'm erasing myself from the narrative. Right. She is specifically taking steps that will make it impossible to understand her point of view, her perspective for future generations. Right. That that's her response to being betrayed. And I thought that is really a beautiful representation of some of the challenges of history. Right. Of how we do and how we think yeah. about history. Um, I also love the song in the room where it happens, where you, know, you get Aaron Burr saying, Here's what we think happened, but no one really was there in the room where it happened. There are limits to what we can know about the past, right? And we come up against these limits in our source space. We come against, up against these limits because of our own perspective. And that's really important lessons to think that history is not just some kind of actual like story of the full truth of the past. Like That is not something we can ever actually achieve. And I think the musical represents that really well. Really yeah, and
2: if I could just tag on to that, I think the other thing the musical does well is emphasize that history is made by people. It isn't a an objective timeline of one thing inevitably happening after the next thing, and you know, it, it, Hamilton isn't a real progress narrative in the sense that. History happens in Hamilton because of accidents, um, because people take action at moments when we don't expect them to take action, because people put other people's interests ahead of theirs, because Hamilton is selfish, because Burr is angry, you know. So, So this should open the door to young historians thinking about how history is made. Um, that it's made by people, and that people often do unexpected, unattractive, and occasionally heroic things.
1: Um, Claire, I love uh, that you brought the, that. Claire and Renee both that you brought that out about Hamilton, which is one of my favorite things about that, uh, about the musical as well. And I have to agree with you, Renee. Byrne is one of my favorite numbers because I think it's such a moment of power for for her in that musical and that um, also so poignant because her power is to take herself away, not to put herself in the story. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up as well because uh, I find that an incredibly powerful moment. Um, uh, Claire, I, I, maybe I'll direct this question to you to start with. Um, one of the aspects of the musical that f- I find so interesting is that in a moment when people on the right and the left politically do not usually agree on anything. And they particularly don't usually agree on the founding fathers and sort of the founding myths, as, as Renee was talking about, because they have, that has been so politicized. And particularly, I mean, from my perspective, particularly on the right, it's been used to um, uh, buttress a lot of claims that, people, that uh, the people on the right are making about how America should be today. This is something that... Um, By and large, uh, there is agreement across the political spectrum, at least until Pence, uh, uh, Vice President Pence visited, that this was, uh, you know, that they agreed with this um, uh, interpretation that uh, uh, Miranda is uh, foregrounding. I mean, how do you account for that? How do your writers talk about that as well?
2: Right. Well, of course, Renee is, is one of the central authors who addresses this, but I, I would like to say two things. One is the Pence moment is very complicated, and Brian Herrera talks about it um, in terms of theater history, that actually there is a long tradition on Broadway of of people speaking from the stage, of breaking the the third wall, or is it the fourth wall, one of those walls, and and sort of stepping out and speaking to the audience directly, Um, and that this is particularly true um, in Latinx theater. Um, So that's one thing. I would say a second thing that is perhaps less emphasized about that confrontation with Mike Pence is that Pence was there with his daughter and uh, his niece, And as they were standing at the door of the theater trying to get out while they were being spoken to, the daughters were mortified and upset. And Pence reputedly turned to them and said, this is what we call free speech. Like, calm down. (laughs) You know, this doesn't have to be terrible. And this is one of the things we stand for, even though we are conservative and disagree with what that man is saying. Um, So so that's one thing. I would say another thing that I saw in the fan community is that there was this strong desire for people to come together over Hamilton almost as a refuge from what was going on in the world. Um, And many of the Hamilton fan pages, the Facebook pages and so on, would explicitly say this is not a place where we can talk about politics. If you post about politics, I'm going to take it down. And um, the only time that I actually saw Miranda really in trouble on social media was when he ran one of his Prizio competitions on behalf of Planned Parenthood, where his mother um, has long been active and serves on the board of trustees, And I remember sitting there watching a Facebook page with all kinds of people coming onto it and saying, You know, I thought you were really wonderful until I learned that what you really want to do is kill babies. I'm so disappointed. I just burned all of my Hamilton memorabilia and so on. And so you can see actually where the actual introduction of politics, contemporary politics, or in fact historical politics into Hamilton could have created. Hamilton as a site of conflict rather than as a site where people came together over uh, the story itself and their pleasure in the story itself. So so I think both there's this desire to have Hamilton as a refuge and there's a really strong effort to keep formal politics on the sidelines when it comes to the discussions about the musical.
0: Now that's interesting and I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting in Claire's essay is that sort of apolitical uh, thrust of the fan, the the, the rabid fan community. I mean, these are the fans who are really constructing social lives around Hamilton um, and meaning for themselves. But when you look at the play, I mean, there's no way to deny that it is making a political argument, right? I mean, you don't do the kind of casting that he has done and tell the story in the way that he does, which include, you know, using musical forms that are associated with um, Latinx and African-American musical forms to say this is the right music to tell the founding story, right? This is the vernacular with which we best understand America's past, right? And I think that's that's another political argument, and it's a really powerful one. Um, I think, you know, and my essay is exactly about this. Like, why is Hamilton something that has, despite the uh, the typical thicket that is early American history politically, why has it appealed generally to Republicans and conservatives and and, and Democrats? And my favorite moment, uh, you know, and I write about this, is in Utah, where uh, the most one of the most conservative members of their House uh, of, of legislature, their legislature, the House there, and one of the most you know progressive members of the house there dress up as King George and Alexander Hamilton to jointly sponsor a resolution praising Lynn manuel Miranda and asking that teachers whenever possible use Hamilton to teach in the schools and that was the moment that sort of starts my essay because I'm um, like what is going on here and to me this is part of the genius the absolute genius of Lynn manuel Miranda and what he's doing in this work is that he is taking a pretty traditional origin story right in sense that it's the traditional founders. This is very much a story of a self-made man, right? So it is someone who starts with nothing, who climbs to a position of greatness, who is made by the sheer dint of his force and his qualities and his merit that he climbs. He's not, you know, based getting uh, handouts from anybody, right? Um, it's about the genius of the American founding moment, right, that we were able to have this war come together create these these documents that have provided stability and opportunity and it's about the uh, the the beauty of the american dream in the sense of he you know is following this dream and also the notion of progress like Lynn Miranda is very much someone who promotes the idea that america has Uh, American history is a story of progress, Uh, the expansion of rights over time, right, from the people who first were granted rights to other groups fighting for and grappling and struggling to get uh, more freedom in American history. These are narratives that typically are pretty easy to buy into for folks on the more conservative side of the spectrum right? Things that suggest, you know, you you make yourself, you're a self-made man. America offers opportunities for social mobility. It is a great land that although we once had slavery, we have moved beyond it and we are not, you know, going to be mired down in that history. On the other hand, he is also providing messages that really speak to more, I would say, more progressive political outlooks. So when he has that line, right, immigrants, we get the job done. In concert with the casting, which is giving power to uh, Latino and African-American characters. And I've seen now also an Asian, um, you know, an Asian George Washington. So really a very different cast of characters. He's also making the argument that one of America's great strengths and one of the reasons it is great is it has been a racially diverse nation of immigrants, right? Now that is not something that on the right you see right now really being bought into, right? That is not something that uh, according to our contemporary Republicans, is making the nation great. But they can see that same storyline as being about social mobility and the ability for self-made men to make themselves uh, in American society. And so that same message can be read in two different ways and can meet sort of two different kinds of political, can send two different kinds of political messages um, on another, you know, another issue, like I quote a lot of conservative columnists writing about how glad they are that Hamilton recognizes slavery but doesn't make it the end of the story. So the fact that these um, founders, many of them were slave owners, and that there was slavery at the founding of the nation doesn't mean that it discredits everything else. On the other side, you can also see that Hamilton centers slavery very clearly and is very critical of slavery and makes clear from the beginning, that slavery was a national contradiction with ideals of freedom in a very fundamental way. And so it's handling that issue in a way that can, to some extent, speak to people with different political orientations. Yeah. And
2: I think just to add to what Renee is saying, I think there are two other things that if I were a teacher um, teaching Hamilton, I would want my students to know. One is that the sort of theme among conservatives that race shouldn't matter, right, is is their response to conversations about white supremacy. And so what conservatives would say is race doesn't matter. Race isn't real. Um, therefore, to talk about race at all is racist. Um, and I think if I were to lodge one criticism of Hamilton that I think ought to be taken into account by teachers is that it is possible to read the musical in exactly that way. Um, That those of us who are looking for conversations about slavery um, in Hamilton really have to keep our ears pricked up. There's really almost no conversation about race, although race is taking place theatrically in front of you at that moment. Um, And certainly the musical forms that, that Renee is talking about have been incorporated. But one of the things we know is that white Americans are Perfectly happy to absorb all kinds of black culture into their view of what American culture is mm-hmm. without really moving the um, moving their views about race and racism at all into into a productive conversation um, but what I would also say about Hamilton um, that is important in this regard is that it is historically. Accurate that the fate of slavery and the fate of people of color was not necessarily um, fixed at the moment of freedom, right? And those conversations continue until the early 19th century. It's really not until the 1820s um, or a little later with the invention of the cotton gin that the American South definitively commits to chattel slavery as the central. central engine of its economy. So this is what I would want high school and college teachers to teach is, is this a liminal moment, right? What happened next? What were the possibilities? What are the possibilities that appear in this play that were frustrated or that were deferred um, for 100 years, 150 years that have never actually perhaps been enacted at all?
1: I have a I, I always try to keep these interviews a little bit under an hour, but I do want to to um, finish with one sort of a global question, maybe. And and that is, I'll start with Renee, maybe. Um, uh, what do you think is the ethical? responsibility for an author who decides to write a piece of historical fiction, whether it's Lynn manuel Miranda writing Hamilton, or it's the many, many uh, movies or uh, books where um, uh, people might think that what they're seeing is more of a historical record than it really is. What, what do you think the responsibility is for those authors?
0: Right. Well, I put that in, I'd see several different levels or categories that I would say a lot of people turn to the past as a site for entertainment. They're not making claims about the truthfulness of their representation. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I do think that we often, you know, th- that there's stories we want to tell that we want to set them in the past and it's not really about the history. Right. So I, I give, You have very little ethical responsibility, honestly, to representations of that kind. Um, You know, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, right? Like, you know, like it it doesn't need to be right. It's a blow up movie, whatever. Uh, Other representations, those that are making some kind of claim about their truth status. And you see this in movies that say based on a true story. You see this in. Um, you know, in in Memoranda, Miranda where he says I wanted to make something historians could take seriously, right? Like he's really making some kind of claim about this is a representation I want to be taken seriously as a as a, a reasonable facsimile of a representation of the past. Um, then I think the ethical obligation is that one do one's research, one actually really dive into some readings, whether that's readings of both readings of scholarship and primary research, and that you engage in, uh, there's a scholar who describes the kind of invention that can happen in feature films as either false invention or true invention, right? So a true invention would be something that is not quite right based on the actual facts of the past, but that gets at a larger truth of the past. So Claire's example of King George would be a kind of true invention, right? He's not actually gay, but you, through that representation, lin and Miranda is communicating one of the ways that gender discourse worked in the 18th century. Right. So I think that is um, a really powerful example of where you can invent and still be absolutely fulfilling an ethical obligation to a complex representation of the past. A false invention would be where you change the story in such a way that you are actually undercutting um, and contradicting what is a consensus view of history. So um, a classic example would be an old movie called Mississippi Burning, which makes the FBI the heroes of the civil rights movement, right? That is a false invention. The FBI were not the heroes of the civil rights movement and making them that uh, really undermines what we know to be true about the civil rights struggle, right? So I think the ethical obligation is to be, true in a way to the larger historical record, but not to have to follow every single fact correctly, because ultimately you are trying to tell an entertaining story. And if you don't entertain people, they're not going to listen anyways.
2: Yeah. I, you know, Renee, I love the, the phrase false invention and true invention. And I think um, one of the, the ethical um, stances that that writers of fiction and performers need to pay attention to is what genre they're working in. So that, you know, one of the things we know, for example, is that science fiction um, often draws on real life and presents life as it could be. And within science fiction, that's not lying. Um, on the other hand, um, producing children's books and textbooks about African-American slaves who joined the Confederate army and fought for the South is clearly a lie. And it's doing a certain kind of political work um, in the present that is damaging and false and serves white supremacy. Um, So that I think, for example, if you're writing um, a young adult Um, biography, you should do your best to stick as close to the facts about that person as you possibly can and evoke the world around them. Um, What was humanly possible for this person? What might that person have wanted that wasn't possible and why? Um, I think a really good example of a book that isn't true and does incredibly important work for history is Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. Um, in which, frankly, it took, I was about, I don't know, seven or 80 pages in before I realized (laughs) that this wasn't a real book about the real slaveholding South. And, you know, what Whitehead does is adopt magical realism to actually put the various solutions that white supremacists had for how to deal with slaveholding under a lens and play out what the consequences of of those solutions might be. The book itself isn't true. Um, The book itself is in many ways demonstrably false, um, but it actually allows its readers to think about the ideologies of slaveholding and white supremacy as people experienced them in the 19th century.
0: Yeah. And I just have to throw in one last example, which I was just reminded of. Uh, Leslie Harris, who has a volume or an essay in this book, who is a historian of um, slavery in New York in the colonial period and the early early republic. She was uh, recently a children's book was made that draws on her scholarship. And the, the author of that book had asked, could I you know, use your, your book, right? Your, what you've you've uncovered about slavery in New York to set a children's book it turns out this children's book, which is fabulous. One of the things the author does in this series is all the kids ride dinosaurs. So they are on dinosaurs, but it is really a book about (laughs) this attack that took place on a colored orphanage in, um, you know, and I can't remember the year, um, but yes, in the, uh, the 18th century. And in the book, it's telling that story through characters who are being, you know, kicked out of that orphanage or being run out of town, right. By, by a white mob, but they're on dinosaurs. Like, okay, so this is not, in fact, historically accurate, right? But what are kids going to learn about American history through that book? They're going to learn quite a lot. And that, to me, that author did their ethical obligation and that they did research in this area. They reached out to scholars. They figured out the best. And then they also took that that material and clearly fictionalized it and putting it in a form that kids might actually read. And I think that's important work to be done.
2: And, I mean, I would like to add one rather embarrassing note about myself, which is when I was... 11 or 12, I became seriously interested in history from, I kid you not, reading Gone with the Wind, um, which my mother gave me her copy that she had read as a girl. I read it straight through. I wept at the end because I could never read it again for the first time. And I became fascinated by the Civil War. And therefore, my obliging parents began to give me real histories about the Civil War. So, so it's also the case that a work of art that is demonstrably false can trigger interest in history among young people, and then it's incumbent upon the older people in the room and the teachers and so on to be educated enough to say, okay, I know you love that, but it's not the real history, so let's do some research and let's dig into it together. And that's exactly what Hamilton fans have been doing
1: well i I think we could continue talking about this book for for quite a bit longer, but we should probably wrap up and um, but I think we hopefully uh, we've done a pretty good job of letting people know what sort of issues are are um, addressed in this book and and certainly it's a I think a great addition to um, not just a scholarship about Hamilton and to be helpful to other um, people who want to teach it, but also maybe a really great model for how to deal with this sort of artwork that does sort of create a collective memory. I mean, it's going to be how people think about um, Hamilton for a long time to come. And um, I think it's a great model for Um, helping us understand, you know, what is that myth and uh, where does it depart uh, from history and where doesn't it? And what is the power of that myth? And I, and I think that uh, there are a lot of other topics that could benefit from the kind of treatment you've given to Hamilton. So um, I, I, uh, I think it's going to be a great addition to the literature in a lot of different ways.
0: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And thanks for giving us this opportunity to be here today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. Really fun. All right. Well, um, thank you for for joining us.
1: And we'll end the interview here. But thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks. This was great.